Psalm 42, 1-11 As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would work now through your word. I pray that you would make us quick to listen. I pray that you would open our eyes. I pray that you would give us a strong desire for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Heather read from Psalm 42 today. A psalm that you may recognize because of the song, As the Deer. And it's a psalm that is full of longing. The psalmist says that he desires God as a deer pants for water. He's separated from God because God's temple is in Jerusalem and he is far away and he longs for God and misses God. Elsewhere in the Psalms, David writes, My tears have been my food day and night. Grief consumes him so that he cannot eat. He says to God, Why have you forgotten me? He feels that there is a separation between him and God. And he is seeking God, but not finding him. And it seems that the Lord is not there. And so he is in deep grief, longing for God, but not experiencing him. We do not know what caused the psalmist to feel that way for this particular psalm. But in Exodus 33, where we are in our series on Exodus, the people of Israel are in deep mourning because they have broken God's covenant and God has said that he will no longer live with his people. They don't wonder where God is. They know that he is gone because of their sin. God has rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and they've seen his power and his deliverance. He has brought them through the Red Sea. He has fed them in the desert. He has provided for them as a father. 
He has made a sacred promise to live with them, to be their God, to dwell in their midst. And they, in turn, have made promises to be his people, to abide by his laws. But before they leave the mountain of this covenant, of this sacred promise, where God gives them his law, before they even leave, they broke his promise and worshipped an idol instead of the living God. And their sin was so serious that God threatened to destroy the entire nation and start over with Moses so that he would keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As we saw last week, Moses prayed and God relented, but the consequences and cost of their sin was still staggering. Now, God says he will no longer go with the people as he had promised, and the people are crushed. If you've ever experienced a broken heart because someone that you loved is gone, I think you can taste the grief that they have. And if you've ever felt like God was not there when you needed him, I believe you understand intuitively where the nation of Israel is from your own experience. Let me ask, have you ever experienced the heartache that comes from God's absence? You desired and thought that he would be there for you, and he was not in the way that you expected. Or, let me ask it another way. Some of you have had profound and deep spiritual experiences with the Lord. But let me ask, when was the last time that you experienced God's presence and power in your life when it was so tangible that it felt like you were living in holiness? Do you sense that he is with you so that you are never alone? Or does that sound strange and foreign? Some of you have seen God work in the past, but it may have been a very long time since you've seen him do anything. And I believe that as we look at this passage of scripture, this is addressed to the whole nation, all of God's people. And now today the church is God's people, and I believe that we need to think of this passage corporately as a body of believers. What does this say to our church here in Holly? And so not just thinking individually, but corporately as a church, we need to ask, is the presence of God among us and powerful? And I want to say some things today that I believe may be very deeply personal to our church. And I want to be careful to strike just the right tone, because I believe there is incredible hope in the promises of the Word of God. But I think that we need to take an inward look as a church. And so I've been here for two years as a pastor, and I don't pretend to know everything or to have understood everything that has led us to this place, but I believe this passage of Scripture should cause us to pause and to take an inward look at our church and to ask, are we enjoying the presence and the power of God here? If you have been here a long time, you have witnessed churches in our neighborhood grow exponentially, while our church has not. And you may wonder, 
Why isn't God blessing here in the same way? Why do people leave? It's very easy to point fingers and cast blame. But I think the question that we must ask, that this passage of Scripture begs us to ask, is do we experience the power and presence of God here in our church? I am fully persuaded that people do not leave the life-giving presence of God if they are meeting him week after week, unless there is some sort of sin in their lives. And so if good Christians go elsewhere to seek the presence and power of God, the question is, why can't they find it here? Some of you may say that God seems distant in your personal lives and perhaps in our church. You may not have experienced the joy of salvation, that peace and excitement that comes from knowing your sins are forgiven. You may not have experienced that joy in a long time. You may not be seeking his presence. You may have enjoyed other things at the church. And very often, it's a good thing to have friends at church. But if the biggest attraction in your church is your friendship with other people... Your sights are too low. We are here to worship the living God. We are here to serve him, to preach his gospel, to see sinners saved from hell. And so if earthly community is all we have, we don't have much. Are we here to experience the power and presence of God saving people? My prayer for this message is, is that this would change today. That we would begin to experience God's glory here so that people who are believers connect with him regularly, together as a church. And when we are not together, that we maintain that fellowship with the Lord and an attitude of prayer and urgent desire to know the Lord powerfully. That that desire For the presence and power of God would be just like a deer panting for water. We cannot survive without it. That's the desire that both the people and Moses have as they deal with the fallout from their sin. And so I want to encourage you today, take a Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus, just the second book in the Bible. We've been there for a little while, so it's very easy to find. And look with me. My first point for today is suffering from God's absence. Suffering from God's absence. The people in mourning. Look at verses 1 through 6 of Exodus chapter 33 with me. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. 
So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The first positive sign, the first encouraging sign in this sad and tragic passage of Scripture is the grief the people feel when God says he will not go with them. They mourn, and there is a deep sadness. The text says that they took off their ornaments, their bracelets, their rings, their necklaces. Remember for just a second, if you've been with us from the beginning of Exodus, slaves don't own jewelry. Their jewelry came because God caused the Egyptians to be generous with them as they left. And the Bible says, so they plundered the Egyptians. They leave with wealth that was not theirs because the Egyptians gave it to them freely as they left. And so these, these bracelets and necklaces and rings would have been symbols of victory. Think for a second, ladies, if you have a favorite necklace or if you have a ring that maybe your mother gave to you or maybe your husband gave to you, you know when and where you were when you received it and your jewelry is something that's precious to you. And so think for a moment of the times when a relationship has been broken or damaged and now you look at that necklace and you don't want to wear it anymore and you want to put it away. And you may never pick it up and put it back on again. This is what's happening as the children of Israel understand that their sin has caused God to leave their presence. And so in grief, they take the symbols of their victory off because there is no victory here. They are in deep grief. They are in mourning. God essentially says, There is no hope for their future relationship that if he did stay in their presence, he would destroy them. And so in grief, they begin to now obey God and they show their repentance by removing their jewelry. And I believe that we need to realize that it is still possible for Christians to grieve God. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.30, this very clear command speaking to believers, do not grieve the Spirit of God. And the Apostle James wrote that God jealously guards the Spirit He has placed within us. God feels grief and jealousy when we choose sin rather than Him. We deal with the same God that spoke to the children of Israel here. It is possible for us to make him jealous. It is possible for us to grieve him. And so I say to you this morning, speaking more to individuals right now, if there is sin in your life, you will not experience the joy of God's love for you. That's actually a good thing. Because the anxiety that you feel and the fear that you have should drive you to repentance and restoration. King David experienced those kinds of emotions. He said that when he was in sin, his bones ached and his body wasted away because of the conviction of his sin. He could not sleep. He could not eat. And that's what should happen to a believer in sin. If you are comfortable in sin, it means that you do not know the Lord and you do not have his spirit living in you. So let me ask, where are you today? Does God seem distant 
because of unconfessed sin in your life? That might seem like a hard question to answer. Sometimes God seems distant and we don't immediately know why. And I think the biggest reason is sin is deceitful. It's possible to be led astray and to not know it. And that's why the scriptures teach us to examine ourselves. That's why the ministry of the word of God is so critical. Because we need his light shining in our hearts constantly so that we are aware if we are being tempted and led away by sin. That's why the body of Christ is so critical, because I need you to speak into my life, and you need me to speak into your life, so that we're not led astray and deceived. Sin is deceitful because we are very good at justifying ourselves. That's why we need the word of God so desperately. So, Think again briefly, because we're in Exodus, I just want to use the Ten Commandments to help with this. Remember, when Jesus teaches on the Ten Commandments, he makes it clear that each of the sins committed when these commandments are broken can be committed in your heart with no external action. So, for example, lust is the same as adultery. Unforgiveness is as bad as murder. And outward worship is hypocrisy if your heart is not in it. So how do you measure against God's law? Do you worship the Lord faithfully? That's the number one commandment. Do you worship him as you are commanded in scripture? Not saying this is how I worship God, but rather coming to the scriptures to learn what they teach about how we should worship. Do you guard his reputation with your life? That's what it means to honor his name, not to take it lightly. Christian, when people look at you, do they think good thoughts about God because of the things that you say and do? Do you participate in weekly worship? Do you honor your parents? Do you forgive other people? Are you sexually pure? Are you generous? Are you speaking the truth in love, and are you thankful for what you have, or are you obsessed with getting more? Those are, the, those are the ten commandments that God gives in Exodus. There are other ways to think about it. The reason this matters is that our sins may seem somewhat less obvious than a golden calf, but they are no less deadly they will make a division between us and the power and presence of God in our lives if we do not forsake them and confess them. There is a godly kind of grief that Christians should experience that should lead them to repentance when they are caught up in sin. Paul says it's good to be grieved with a kind of grief that leads you to repentance and life. Godly grief is not crippling, it's not permanent, The default disposition for a Christian is not discouragement, it's joy. But until we see the Lord face to face, there will always be times where we realize, oh my goodness, I have been caught up in sin and didn't know it. And so we need to repent. We need people like Nathan who confronted David to boldly come along and say, I see this in your life and I think you're wrong. We need that so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and leave no place for the Spirit of God in our lives. And if we think of this together as a church corporately, so First Baptist Church of Holly, we need to ask, are we faithful to the Lord Jesus? Is he still our first love? 
Are we obedient to the mission that God has given us? Measurably, how many times do we call people to repentance and faith in the gospel so that their souls are saved? Do we love each other in unity? God says, you cannot claim to love me if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do we spread the gospel of Jesus, calling people to repentance and faith? Do we make disciples? Think for a second. One aspect of discipleship is knowledge of the word of God. If you have been here for five years, you should know more than someone who has only been here a year. And if you have been here 10 years, you should know more than someone who has only been here five years. Does the culture of our church, our Sunday school classes and our preaching and our small groups, does that lead people to greater knowledge and obedience of the truth? These are hard questions that I believe that I am unqualified to say yes or no to any of them. But all of us, and especially our leadership, need to ask, what does Jesus think of our church? Are we just playing church, and do we need to repent? Immediately following these verses that show the grief of the people at God's absence, we find Moses praying for them, and indeed the people actually seeking the Lord. So look with me at verses 7 through 16, and we'll see seeking God's presence. Seeking God's presence, the prophet prays. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. And thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And so you find constantly there's a prophetic ministry of seeking the Lord on behalf of the people. And then notice this. This is the conversation that Moses has with God. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? There are some important differences between this and what has happened previously and what God has promised will happen in the future. Remember, God has pledged that his presence would abide with all the people, not apart from the people, outside the people, but with them and among them. But now, when Moses sets up a tent to talk to God, he continues to do it far away from the people. The tabernacle that God described that was supposed to be built, that we've already looked at, 
is supposed to be set up in the middle of the camp, at its center. But Moses does not even try to talk to God when he's surrounded by the people now because the threat of destruction is still real. Notice that now, as Moses goes and seeks the Lord, the people also worship. There is a national attention to the ministry of Moses so that when he goes and prays before the Lord, all of the people notice and all of the people worship. They have put aside their idols and they are now desperate for God. And notice a few things about Moses' prayer. Moses prays based on knowing God's name, which means that he has an intimate relationship He is close to the Lord, and he wants to to say, since we have this relationship, God, please answer my prayers. He reminds God that the only thing special about Israel is his presence, and so he begs God to go with them. And as I said this morning, when I preach, I want to address both individuals and the church collectively. And normally I I say just a little bit more to individuals so that Monday through Saturday you hopefully are better equipped to walk in obedience to what the scriptures teach us. But this message, I believe, is really more for our entire church. And so I want to say a few things again as your pastor that I believe as a church we need to think about together. Grief over sin should drive us to our knees. We see Moses pray for the whole nation, and we see the whole nation eagerly looking for God to respond, worshiping God from afar. And for us, I believe that means that we need to pray for our church. We need to pray for people we know who are caught up in sin. We need to ask the Lord to reveal our own sins so that we can confess it and forsake it. We need to ask the Lord to give us spiritual gifts for the work of the ministry. We need to ask God to bless our missions work. But let me say this, and I want to say this as kindly as I know how, we are not culturally a praying church. Some of you may pray individually and privately, but I believe we desperately need to pray together, corporately. And for the most part, we do not pray together except for the brief moments where we are led in prayer here in this service. Let me ask, do we really expect to have a relationship with God as a church if we don't take time to talk to Him as a church? And I understand some people look at the passage where Jesus instructs us to go into our closets privately. And yes, that's true. That is an aspect of prayer. But Jesus also taught his disciples to pray together. And when you look at Acts, the Holy Spirit leads the entire church in prayer so that the church is devoted to prayer and united in prayer. And that prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit among them fuels their ministry. The Apostle James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And I think to some extent that is true of our church. We are not as faithful in asking as we should be, not together. Could you take a moment right now and answer this question? Why is it that we do not pray together 
more. We have more than enough reason to drive us to our knees. We wrestle with sin individually. Our nation and world are a mess. We have a mission that only God can accomplish. And so there are many reasons that we have to pray. We have three times available for corporate prayer here. We have an 8.30 a.m. and a 6.30 p.m. prayer meeting on Wednesday, and we have an 8.15 prayer meeting on Sunday mornings. And if none of those times work for you, I am happy to add more. In fact, if your reason for not praying as a group is because you cannot make one of those times, take out your bulletin right now, write down a time when you can pray, and drop it in a basket as you leave. We will make time to pray as a church. But I believe the reality is, prayer is not that important to us as a culture. My pastor in Chicago, Pastor Lutzer, is a man that I deeply admire because of the way he led the church in prayer. And he, I believe, learned a lot from a pastor in New York. He said he visited Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York City once, and he was amazed because on a Tuesday night, they had 1,500 people come out for a two-hour midweek prayer meeting. And he asked Jim Cimbala, now he's a pastor in Chicago, so you can't just blame that on an urban setting where there are lots of people. Percentage-wise, a remarkable amount of Brooklyn Tabernacle came back for their midweek prayer meeting, and that was not true at Moody Church. And so Pastor Lutzer asked Jim Cimbala, he said, how did you do this? And, and Pastor Jim Cimbala said to him, You would also have a full church on prayer meeting night if your people actually believed that God answers prayer. And I think Jim is right. We don't really expect God to answer, and we don't think our prayers will actually make a difference, so we don't make it a priority to meet together and pray. But I want to point you to the power of prayer right here in this scripture passage, recognize that Moses' prayer makes an incredible difference for him and for the people of God. That as Moses prays and asks God to go with them, God grants his request. And God's glory is restored to Israel. Notice God's answer and read with me in verses 17 through the end of the chapter here. This is my last point for today. Surrounded by God's glory, the Savior answers prayer. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. That's exactly what Moses said to him. And I know you by name. He's saying, Moses, I do have a relationship with you. And so when you ask me for something, I will answer and I will bless And he said, I will make, verse 18 rather, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
This passage shows that God is willing to bless his people in spite of their sin when they forsake it, when they confess it, and when they seek him. You might remember that when the covenant was first made a few chapters ago, all of the elders of Israel basked in the glory of God and they ate a meal in his presence. And this is Moses begging God for that experience again. He's saying, God, please keep your promises in exactly the same way. Please do what you did. We've already tasted and experienced it. Please let me experience it again. Because if I don't, I don't know if you're really going to do what you said. And so he's begging God for the power and presence that he has already seen and experienced. That experience of God's glory might seem out of reach for you and I as a believer. You may never have experienced God's presence in prayer, but let me say three things about it. Number one, it is possible to experience God's awesome presence. Peter, when he writes to believers, just average Christians, says that every believer can experience inexpressible joy that is full of glory, even though we have never seen God face to face. Peter says, Although you have not seen him, you love him. It is possible when we seek the Lord to experience this kind of glory. So number one, it's possible. It's not just for the super spiritual. It's only available by grace. The only reason we ever experience God's goodness is when he chooses in his kindness to give it to us. Not because we're deserving, but because we exercise a dependence on him. And so when someone experiences the power of God in their life, you can't think, well, they must be a really good person. That's not true of anyone. All of us are sinners. The only reason anyone ever experiences the power and presence of God is by grace. And so it's available for everyone. Second, the book of Hebrews clearly says we can boldly come before the throne of grace in prayer because of the work of Christ. So we can boldly pray. So number one, it's possible to experience this kind of glory. Number two, we can boldly come before the Lord in prayer. And number three, this is so critical. If you have struggled in your prayer life, I believe this is really key. God has given us so many precious promises in his word. We need to look to his promises And believe them. And let me give you just one example. This is something that I come back to on at least a weekly basis. There are a handful of these that are incredibly helpful. Isaiah 66.2 says this. Isaiah 66.2 says this. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God says, I will look. God does not lie. What he says, he will do. And so if you desire him, what Isaiah 66.2 says, we need humility, we need contriteness. That, that is a kind of grief over sin. And we need to tremble at the word of God. We don't just listen to it and say, well, that was boring, move on. We listen to it knowing that our lives depend on the faith that comes from hearing the word of God. That's trembling at God's word. 
And I believe that this is why God answered Moses' prayer. Moses humbly trembled at the word of God, and he asked God to show him his ways so that he could find favor with him. Moses doesn't assume that he's doing everything right. He says, I'll remind you, he says very clearly, verse 13, If I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways so that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Moses doesn't come to God and say, I didn't do anything. What's the problem here? Moses comes to God and says, show me your ways because if you don't show me, I don't know if I can have favor in your sight. And I believe Moses' humility is shown in a desire to be obedient and to learn what God's ways are. He was not asking God for favors with a foxhole promise. He was clinging to what God had already promised to do, and we can do the same. This passage also shows the awesome glory of God that not even Moses was allowed to see his face, and yet you and I, because of the work of Christ, are promised an amazing future glory that far surpasses anything Moses ever experienced. This is the God that we pray to every time we gather together, every time we bow our heads. He is awesome in splendor, and he loves us so much that his son died for our sin. There is hope for every person and every church because of Jesus Christ. God's word invites us to repent. If you're here today and and this has resonated with you, I want to remind you, eight times in the beginning of Revelation, Jesus says to the church, repent. And that is what I would like us as a church to do right now. And so I'd like to have an attitude of prayer. I would like to encourage you, if God has tugged at your heart and you feel the conviction of the Spirit, to call out to him in prayer right now. And if anyone is moved to pray and to lead us in prayer as a group in a few moments, I would encourage you to do that. And after just a few moments, I'll close us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would build in us a kind of desire that honors you, that earnestly seeks you for our church and for our community and for our world. Lord, we are desperate for you. I pray that your spirit would maintain that, and I ask that you would continue to lead us in prayer. I ask that you would lead us in faithfulness until Jesus returns. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Lord, I ask it because of his blood. Amen.